the Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth, from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, and around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth, that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 50, which is the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, January the 27th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and we are continuing today in uh, the prophetic um, words of Isaiah in chapter 49, verses 13 to 23, and then also in the, the epistle to the church in Galatia, the third chapter, the first 14 verses, and in Mark's gospel, chapter 6, verses 30 to 46. So the Lord speaks and says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. And that would certainly be good news for his people who are in exile in Babylon at the time. And so Isaiah is announcing that there's a coming of the Lord to redeem his people and to bring them out of the bondage in, uh, of their exile in Babylon. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And I don't know if you've ever waited on the Lord for some period of time for something that you believed that he had said that he would do or that, that only he could do. But you, you might know the feeling of waiting longer than you could have ever imagined you'd be waiting for the fulfillment of what you believe to be a promise to you and, and, and you would believe the same thing that it says here, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. And after a long, long time of exile in Babylon, the people probably were in a place where they thought, you know, this is never going to end because m- many of them would never, ever have been even in the land because they were there 70 years. And so you can imagine that most of them would have been gone. But there, there's a longing for in an exile community, exiled from their homeland, that's unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. When I went to Rwanda in 2000, I went and spent three months there, and, and while I was there, I had a driver, and that driver's name was Fred, and Fred was 30 years old. Well, Fred had been born in Uganda. He had spent his entire life in Uganda. His parents had fled before he was ever born. They had fled because the the genocide that happened in 1994, the prelude to that had been going on since about 1961 or 62. Um, there were multiple um, smaller, not genocides, because that, that has a particular definition, but there were, there were a lot of massacres that went on. And so many, many people had fled Rwanda and gone to places like Burundi and Uganda and some into Congo, but not as many there. Um, and, and so Fred, though, I asked him, I said, so how long after the genocide, which lasted about 90 days, I said, how long after the genocide did you come back? He said it was about six weeks. And so he had come back, having never been to Rwanda in his life. I said, it was dangerous then, and it was a a horrible place at that time. Why in the world did you come back? And he said, because this is my country, and I wanted to be part of the rebuilding of my country. It's just something that you don't see 
that in, in normal American life. You don't, you don't see that longing for a homeland that truly belongs to you. We, we just don't have any experience of that in our personal lives. But, but there's a hopelessness that can come in whenever you've waited for something for a long time. And so these people would, ne- like I said, many of them would have had no experience of ever being in the land. And, and yet, I can tell you, based on what I know from uh, the, my Rwandan experience, that the longing would have been there, even though they were never there. It was their homeland. And so you can get discouraged and say, the Lord's forsaken me and forgotten me. And the answer to that is, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. So, so the Lord is such a tender thing. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. I can't possibly forget you. That's how deeply ingrained in me you are. You are my prized possession, the only nation on earth with whom I have a covenant. But you broke that covenant in about a thousand different ways. And he had announced to them how long they would be in that exile. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. So all those who are coming after you or coming against you know this. They'll never accomplish the mission that they believe that they have. That's not how this is going to end. It's going to end with a complete reversal of fortune is God's promise. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, this place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in it. In other words, there's going to be such an explosion in your midst, and that explosion is a good thing. It's like a population explosion. And, and what it is is to say that, that there's so many of us that this land can't really contain us very well. The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you'll say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? You'll be so amazed when you look around to, to see all the people coming to the land, you'll be shocked and amazed because you, will, you thought that you had no children at all. And then suddenly you're surrounded by brothers and sisters and children. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples and they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers with this With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I'm the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. It's an amazing thing. And like I said, you know, there were about 800,000 people killed in Rwanda in that 90-day period in 1994. And yet, within less than a year, the exiles returned. And when the exiles returned, within a year, there were more people living in Rwanda than prior to the genocide because of this movement of the people back that that God had restored them to the land was their 
um, basic idea of that. And it was very similar to the way what happened in 1948 when the Jews were given their homeland in uh, Israel again, and the people began to flood back into that place, that incredibly vulnerable little place. There's certain, there's so many parallels that can be drawn between Rwanda and Israel. It's absolutely unbelievable. You're talking about a landlocked country in the middle and surrounded by those who hate it and would rather see it destroyed. And yet there was such a great pride and such a great joy in that little country to see all these people come back to that land. And they wanted to be part of the rebuilding of the land because they knew what its potential was. They, and the potential, in Rwanda at least, had to do with one thing, and that's the people. And they knew if the people became one, that they, they could absolutely do anything, and it's become an economic powerhouse in Central Africa because of that. <clears throat> in the gospel today, so remember Jesus had sent out the disciples two by two to go out and cast out demons and heal people. And so now the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. And it's important that after you've done some sort of mission work or whatever, and even preaching, um, I would be exhausted on Sunday afternoon. There wasn't a single day when I was leading the church that I wasn't exhausted on Sunday afternoon. And it's because you've hopefully poured out everything you had in that mission, and you came back a little bit empty. He says, so he says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. There was such a press around them. The word about Jesus had gone out, and then these disciples had taken it further abroad, and people were hearing about that. And so there were more and more people attracted to Jesus in this. And so they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So Jesus has invited the disciples to come away, and he knew that it was important for them to come away, to sort of debrief, talk about what they'd seen and done and all that, and and, and be alone for a season of time in order to kind of restore themselves. And and yet, he sees all these people coming. They get there ahead of them. They, they, They so desperately want what Jesus offers that they get there ahead of them. And Jesus feels great compassion on them because they're not chasing after the shepherds who were supposed to be over them. That He sees the truth, and the truth is that these people are desperate desperate for what he has to offer because the, the people who are the leaders care nothing at all for them. And so when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. We're in the middle of nowhere, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. Now, this is the first of the uh, feeding miracles in Mark. You give them something to eat. And they said, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, we have five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. That always fascinates me. You see it here in Mark, and you also see it in John's Gospel, that, that Jesus has them sit on the grass every single time that he does these feedings. That it mentions this idea of they're sitting on the green grass. It's not always green, but it's always the grass that they're sitting on. 
So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go on before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. I've mentioned this before. Um, there was a, um, a commentator who was, who was quite well known and, and quite popular named William Barclay. And Barclay um, didn't believe any of these things. He didn't believe in miracles didn't believe any of these things at all. What he would teach was that what really happened here was is, is that the people saw Jesus' faith in, in this pathetic sort of five loaves and two fish offering, and that he, he distributed them, and that encouraged them then to share. Well, I'm sorry, but, but if you continue down the line that Barclay stays on consistently about all these kinds of miracles, then there's no reason that people would follow Jesus. There's honestly, why would people follow after him if all he's teaching them to do is share? Why would anybody write these Gospels if all Jesus is doing is teaching them how to share? I think Barclay had such a, a, a tiny view of Jesus that it wasn't worth having. He, he had a Gospel that wasn't worth preaching. And it's too often that I hear these same kinds of things being taught in the church. I mean, I've, I've heard things like leprosy was actually acne. Well, if you follow Judaism and if you follow rabbinic teaching, what you'll find is, no, it has nothing to do with acne. It's a specific kind of uh, uh, problem that exists only in the land, and it's due to sin. And the proof of that is is that, that you have to make a sin offering. And when the lepers come to Jesus, he tells them to go to the rabbis, get them to certify the cure, and make the sin offering that Moses had commanded for them. So you don't want to—the crazy thing is, why would you want to diminish all these things? I mean, if you diminish them all, then you've got something other than Christianity at the end of the day. You have something less than God, certainly less than any God I want to have anything to do with. What's the point of worshiping him if his whole shtick is is that he got us to share, and we had plenty that way? I just don't understand how that happens, and I certainly don't understand how he then became a really popular commentary, commentarist's. So in the epistle, it's, it's sort of the same thing that Paul's having to deal with here. I mean, you have a diminished Jesus, right? Because what, what he's telling the Galatians is the way that your Jesus is diminished is, is that his sacrifice wasn't sufficient. There's stuff you have to do to add to it in order to have salvation. Well, that's, that's a Jesus that's really not worth having in so many ways, because at some level he would be uh, indistinct from some of those who had gone before. And, and that's what we saw in the gospel yesterday, was they're trying to figure out who he is, and what they want to do is compare him to the ones who had come before him and say, no, that's who he is. Okay, he's John the Baptist, but he's resurrected from the dead now, so he has different power than he had at that time. No, he's Elijah. He's No, he is, he is individual and distinct from all of those, and he's greater than all of those. That's the whole point of the transfiguration. So you get Moses and Elijah there, and then poof, they're gone, and the voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. I mean, he stands above all of them. Don't try and put him into a category that says, oh, he's like this, or he's like that. No, he's greater than all. And, and 
his sacrifice of himself once offered is sufficient for salvation. There's nothing that can be added to it. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to accept the ceremonial law, the all those other things. And that's exactly what Paul's saying here. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was por- publicly portrayed as crucified. You know that he was crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? I mean, and the answer there is, is plain. You, you didn't—it's not because of anything you did that you received the Spirit of God. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Are you adding something to what Jesus did? You received the Spirit of God, but you, God didn't withdraw that. He doesn't add to it because you do stuff. He said, did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Because it would be in vain if, if salvation is something other than faith. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Which way did this happen? Just as Abraham, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. No, that's the point. The point is, is that you have the faith of Abraham. You believe that God can do all things and that he will do all things that he has promised. And so why are you trying to, to do something that you believe will add to what Jesus has already done? You were prepared for good works and to walk in good works, but, but not for salvation. That's the outworking of faith is to say, I've been set free from the law, so I can go and do these things. And I do those because I love him, and I want to do the things that he did. Because he said, greater things than these will you do. He said, know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Period, end of sentence. It's not those who keep the law, because Abraham didn't have a law. It was faith. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So the Gentiles were always part of God's plan through Abraham. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, which is a quote from Habakkuk 2. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Good luck with that, is what Paul's saying. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, which was the stumbling block for Jews. The fact that Jesus was was crucified on a Roman cross fulfilled that passage from Leviticus that cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so it was a stumbling block to them that he died in that manner because what it proved to them was he was accursed. What the resurrection proved... (laughs) is exactly the opposite. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Faith's a difficult thing to define in a lot of ways. Is it just belief or is it something more than that? I mean, it is certainly belief. 
It includes belief, but faith is more than the belief in the truth of the proclamation of the, the creed, for instance. There's more to it than that. It's life lived according to that belief. It's a life that says, this life is not my own. It belongs to him now, because he's the one who has redeemed me from the law of sin and death. I've been set free from those things so that my life might now be a sacrifice and an offering to the one who has redeemed me. So your life... The works that you do, according to James and everybody else, including Paul, it should bespeak the faith that you have. It should say, I live in a different way because I've been redeemed, because I have seen the truth. And that truth is that this world is an illusion and its promises are void. But there is eternal hope, and that is the kingdom that I'm living for.